Hello, Alex. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. Hey, Bobby. Nice to, uh, nice to meet you. Thank you for the welcome. Oh, it's great to have you here. I see that you are doing the same thing and have a, a gambling podcast, a gambling addiction podcast, and are raising awareness. So that's how we connected. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and I'm hoping that you'll you'll tell my audience a little about yourself and, and what your mission is and what's going on in your world. So how about you kick us off with some, maybe some personal insight and, and how you're doing? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so obviously, yeah, we connected on on uh, online. But yeah, my background and experience. So I'm 31 years old. I live in Portsmouth, south of England um, in the UK. And I have quite a varied background. So I studied at school and then went to university to study human geography um, up in a place called Leeds, which is kind of, everyone kind of jokes and says it's all about like migration stats and kind of boring stuff. But it was quite exciting um, with some like, you know, kind of politics thrown in there and economics and society kind of stuff. It was, uh, yeah, it's very good. I mean, I'm not going to lie there. The field trips were also pretty awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for explaining, because when you first said that, I had no idea what you were saying. So I'm glad <laughs> that you broke it down a little more. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where I, I don't know why I went into that. I'm always rubbish at like introducing myself and never know what quite to say. But yeah, so from there, I then went uh, to London, uh, kind of migrated down to London like the rest of the the, the university did, and got a job, like shirt and tie job, working uh, in an office, graduate job. So it was kind of like very well paid and very proper. And I was really young though. I was like 22, even though this was like the, the right thing to do, like what everyone seems to be doing. I was just like, it wasn't for me. So I kind of quit, followed my dream. Um, so I'm, I'm a drummer. I was always kind of split between playing the drums or studying that at university or, or not. And I didn't obviously, but then yeah, I sort of became self-employed and I started teaching drums to like family friends. And then it kind of built from there. I sort of built up a, a kind of, um, yeah, a number of students, done some cool things. I think cool, <laughs> but like, <laughs> sure they are. yeah, no, you know, you know, like, uh, you know, you know, played with bands, been on cruise ships, played on records, been on TV, you know, lots of different things. So, um, yeah. And then wait a minute, wait a minute. Been yeah. on TV and you just breeze by that. <laughs> oh my Tell goodness. Us more. <laughs> oh God. That sounds already. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm already cringing at what I've just said yeah no it's yeah so I, I kind of was like I wanted to be in a band that was my childhood dream I wanted to be like Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers that he was like my idol he was like the the guy that I wanted to be so I always wanted to be in a like a pop band a rock band that kind of thing so yeah during during like my mid-20s got together with a group of guys and uh, yeah we we formed a band we weren't I mean for goodness sake we weren't like top of the pops you know like top of the charts or anything but we had a bit of a trajectory kind of thing. You know, you play one gig, no one's there. And then you play another gig and there's a few more people. And then it kind of starts snowballing a little bit. And then we play some festivals. And we put out a song and yeah, we were played on some, some TV channels and we did some recording and for a TV show. And yeah, it was kind of really cool. And then, but then like most bands, it's like 101 of bands, like how they split up. It's like, yeah, we had our musical differences. So <laughs> yeah, that kind of fell away. So yeah. Gotcha. It's funny as you're talking about, you know, travel and and lifestyle, here we are to gambling addicts. And I think about the need for excitement, right? Just in how we live our lives. We didn't even start talking about gambling yet, 
but I can hear some of the things that we have in common just by what you said. So I'm excited to learn more and see some of the other similarities, I'm sure. Not that I could play the drums. I did have crush on a couple drummers. I loved the Guns N' Roses original one, and I love uh, Lars yeah. from Metallica. Those are my two boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> he's pretty cool. La- Lars is like such a dude. I love him. Yeah, yeah he's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So so where, where in this story does gambling begin for you? Yeah, good question. So it it kind of, it really kind of came to a head when I was in London the first time when I was 22. I'd started to kind of gamble before that. So like when I was, when I was a kid, but sort of 17, 18, started to kind of really gamble like on horse racing and football bets and, or should I say soccer? <laughs> I was going to um, say your football or my football. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. And then when I was 22 living in London, it kind of really came to a head because previously I was booking at betting in like bookies, bookmakers. So we had these machines, fixed or betting terminals. You might hear them kind of banded around in the UK, but basically like a roulette machine. You go onto it, you put your money in and then you spin the wheel and it's a roulette machine. You could be there. You can play slots. I mean, you could be there for hours, right? So I kind of quickly got hooked um, on those. And then yeah, when I was living in London, I was I was alone. It was the Olympic year, 2012. So London was hosting the Olympics. And it was like this really busy, bustling city with loads of stuff going on. But yet I was really lonely. I didn't have I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends. I was living in central London and I had cash. I had like more money than I'd ever had before because I had this kind of well-paid job for a 22-year-old. So I was like, right, well, I'll go to the bookies, but I think what would be really good if I went to the casinos. Now that seems like a really good idea. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, kind of attracted to the bright lights, like you mentioned that kind of need for excitement. So yeah, it kind of really kind of started there, if you like. Yeah. Am I hearing that loneliness was the instigator to gambling? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I was, I mean, I'd always like consider myself quite like independent or quite an extroverted introvert, if that makes sense. So kind of happy on my own space. And I come home from school, I'd always just kind of lock myself in my room and do my own thing and do the homework. So I was kind of always content. So then, yeah, the loneliness, I guess, of gambling, I actually really enjoyed at first, if that makes sense. I liked the isolation. It was like, oh no, I'm doing it for myself. Like this is my own hobby. No one else needs to know about it. But yeah, sure, for sure. Like married that in with loneliness in London. Yeah, it was just like a kind of concoction that that led me that way. I I think it's a common one. That's why I wanted to call it out. And you just did a really good job of saying, you know, like, you're in a casino with a bunch of people and you can still be isolated. Mm. It it changes. Like through my gambling career, it was, well, I, I manipulated people to go with me. So I would have like the permission to go, right? Like, come play bingo with me. Come go to the slots with me. But it really is when we get there, there's never quality time with the other people. It was just a, a manipulation. At least that's how I operated. So it's really interesting to be alone in a building. Even, even if you do know people, it doesn't really matter when we're gambling. It's crazy. It's crazy. Like, I think I enjoyed it as well. The social side, again, it was being around people. I would go on my own, but I was around people. And, you know, 
even if other people are having conversations or they're kind of the, the rapport that you build up with the dealers at the table, that kind of thing. But yeah, sometimes I could, I could go there and like not actually say much at all apart from, oh, can you change these, you know, can you change my 20 quid note for, you know, whatever amount of chips or whatever, you know, so. Yeah. yeah. So, so when did you notice it changing or becoming a problem for you? Like, mm-hmm. let me let you tell your story the way you want. If you want to progress it through the journey to where you are today before I start digging in. <laughs> oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. If you, no, no, like, yeah, no, I'm fine to kind of take your lead. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you said that was in your early 20s and like that's when it started ramping up. Is that when you identified you had a problem? Did you try quitting back then? That's kind of what I'm wondering or if that came up later. Okay, so that kind of came up a bit later. So at this point, I quit my job in London. It wasn't a problem per se. It was more of a kind of inquisitive like, oh, it was my first time really going to the casinos kind of thing. I wasn't at this point, I wasn't in debt. And I, I didn't view it as a problem. It was more like excitement, that, that, that initial phase. And like you say, the loneliness, the boredom kind of led me perhaps that way. But yeah, so I moved home uh, with my parents about an hour outside of London, a place called Newbury near Oxford. Any of your listeners know that. But uh, oh, it, it's near Downton Abbey. Do you watch Downton Abbey? Highclere Castle? Or I do. Just, like, but I have a lot of listeners like we're in 67 countries. So I know that the UK wow. is one of my countries. So somebody knows what you're talking about. And one of my business partners, <laughs> it, it actually, you're, you're kind of cracking me up. He just moved back closer to London, but he was staying with his mom in between flats. And his mom lived about an hour outside of London. And that's what I'm picturing. Like, do all the parents live out in the country and all the youngins live in the city? Is that how that works? Yeah, it, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. 67 countries. That's that's really cool. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm notorious for going off on tangents. Um, sorry. You're great. <laughs> uh, but uh, so I moved back home and then I, I picked up the whole, like, I'm going to be a drummer, drum teacher. So I was self-employed. I'd also started a, uh, a, a men's six-a-side league. So it's like a small sided soccer games, as it were. Every week, you know, higher a pitch. There's, there's several teams. They kind of, they pay the money and it's like a league. So I, so I ran that, Hot Shots Football. I ran that for seven or eight years. But that then quickly became my like gambling fund, as it were. So I was kind of getting cash each week. It was just, I call it like liquid money, you know, like came in, went out, came in, went out. So at this point I was self-employed. I had like loads of time on my hands. I'd gone from working like 40 hours a week to sort of conveniently only working like say 15 or 20 tops, you know, but yeah, I was still earning relatively good money living at home. So yeah, it didn't, it kind of escalated a couple of years later. I moved back to London with a few friends and by this point, I'd just come off tour with, with a couple of bands. I thought I was like, you know, when you're like mid-20s, I was like, you know, felt completely invincible. Like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a world beater kind of thing. I had savings in the bank and then it became a problem within six months, or say 2014, January, six months to the summer. That's, I, I lost over like 10,000 pounds, which was astronomical compared to where I had savings and stuff. I had probably maybe like £2,000 in savings. So very quickly, I went from like running my own car to like, to you know, to having a job and having lots of things going on. I had to pick up an extra job, like a coffee shop, had to do like mega early shifts just to make ends meet. I couldn't afford the rent. I was then going to the casino most days. I was lying to my friends. I was coming home late at night and then just kind of taking the tube to central London. 
I wouldn't think twice about spending several hundred pounds a, a night. And it was all on the roulette as well. So it's so by the summer, I was like, I can't afford, I, 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 can't, I can't do this. I literally had a few quid in that, like a few pounds in the, the bank account. And I was like, but yeah, I was like, well, I'm not moving home. Like, I'm going to stay here. So yeah, that's that probably, it's a very long winded answer to, to your question of like when it became a problem, but that was, yeah, it was around then. Well, I heard, I, I love your story so far because again, you're calling out things that feel very obvious to me, but maybe don't feel that way when people are in the midst of it. You called out having time on your hands. So now we've got boredom, time on our hands and access to money, right? Like those are things that I think we work on curing in recovery, which we could talk about later. So your, your story is beautiful. Like you're, you're hitting on things that I think our audiences need to hear. So I appreciate that. So what was, did you have like that one rock bottom moment that people talk about? It sounds like you're getting defeated at this point. You're immersed in it. What happened to the band? Like, what does all that look like? Yeah, sure. So it was, it was kind of, it was quite complicated. So at this point, I then moved back home again. Then I then borrowed money from my parents to kind of pay off the last kind of couple of months rent. I've lied to them. I've not told them why I've moved back home all of a sudden without any money. I felt a huge amount of shame and embarrassment that I was living back at home. I considered myself a, I considered myself a failure. Like I said, to, always said to myself, if I'm living at home by the time I'm 25, I'm a failure. I, that straight away, I was like, boom, I failed. I didn't move back out properly until I was about 30. So like for a good few years, I like just hit just a general kind of downward, you know, depression as it were. So, but interestingly then I was able to kind of still behave or still kind of operate quote unquote normally. So I actually then expanded my football league. So I kind of, that, the, the, that business was actually flourishing at the time. It was very bizarre. So I kind of got myself a little bit out of debt a couple of years. It kind of, I've got out of debt, but then the ban was kind of going on. I'm at this point, it, my life was complete chaos. I was, I was in London one night, then the next night I was back home and then I was doing this and doing that. It was just completely transient. So the band was kind of going on in the background, kind of taking off a little bit. I have, I got into drugs, got into smoking. I don't know if that's experimenting with drugs because it's your twenties or what, I don't know. <laughs> I, was gonna, I have that written down. I was curious because when you say band. I, I hate to stereotype that way, but I, I was curious to what alcohol and drug use looked like during that period of time. So thank you for addressing that. Yeah, no, sure. It was, uh, yeah, I was like, marijuana was my thing. I just like, up until that point, I never really touched it. I never really, like, I was dead against smoking. I was super sporty as a kid. And then it was just like, I'm in a band now. So it's like, I can do you it. Right? Makes sense to me. It's the law, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that kind of kicked off. I moved back into London again with my girlfriends and the rock bottom moment was around 2017. I given up, the band had kind of folded. I had a failed business venture to do with drum teaching online. That failed. That caused me a lot of stress and angst and things. I was experimenting heavily with drugs. I couldn't afford the rent. I'd stopped working as much and I was starting to kind of bet heavily, like really heavily. I then started to bet online was just completely lying to my girlfriend. It was just a massive, just a complete like catastrophe. All these like, all these little roads just leading to a massive car crash. 
So I walked out, my girlfriend, like pretty much just self-sabotaged the, the relationship, just walked out, like literally didn't tell her that there was anything wrong. She just thought, oh, he probably smokes too much dope, you know? And I just pretty much packed my bags and was just like, oh, I'm off, you know, kind of thing. So that was, that was, a, that was a rock bottom moment. There are also other moments after that, panic attacks, a lot of things to do with the drugs maybe as well. But that was a real kind of, looking back now, that was a kind of rock bottom moment. So, Yeah, I could see that. You seem like a good guy, right? Like that's my first impression. And I think that well, thank you. when we're in, in that chaos and in that addiction and our mind isn't right, you know, whether it's numb from gambling or impacted from the drugs and stuff, I imagine that the reason you considered that a rock bottom is because you hurt someone else because someone else was impacted, right? Mm. So I, I could see that why you would call it that. So I'm sorry that that was part of the journey. So is that when you decided to seek treatment or recovery? And then what tools did you use when you decided to quit? Mm, Yeah, sure. So, so I moved back home again. This is becoming a recurring nightmare. It's like snakes and ladders up, down, up, down, Um, (laughs) or the okie koki, you know, like in, out, in, out, shake it all about. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the hokey koki, I don't know if you, Hokey pokey. We call it hokey pokey. That's why I was like, wait, that sounds familiar. <laughs> oh, love it. Uh, yeah. I just, yeah, such a, such a kid. <laughs> That's me. So we, I moved back home. The relationship was in complete tatters. My girlfriend went through a whole bunch of stuff that I'm really not proud of. I'm really not. We're, we're back. We're now back together again. You know, we're back. We're wow. back together. So that's been a rocky road, but we're back together. So that's, that's, that's been, that's been really good, really hard, but really good. But yeah, so what I did is I moved home, but I was still lying at this point. The gambling bizarrely was like this backroom thing. Oh yeah. I, I kind of know I've got a problem. I probably shouldn't do this, but I'm doing it. Cause I was just in this cycle of like getting paid, spending all my paycheck, getting paid, spending all my paycheck. So I was just like, just going around in circles. I was constantly in debt and and so I remember going to, I self-excluded from casinos. It was around Christmas 2017. I'd gone to London to do my quote-unquote Christmas shopping. I basically lied to myself. I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do my Christmas shopping. And I got to the casino, this very swanky casino. I was like, I've got 200 quid, right. I'm going to see if I can double it, you know, that kind of thing. Bear in mind, I didn't have this money. Like It was just like overdraft money. And I got in there half past nine. I, I, was, I was really positive. I was like, right, come on. I've got to have a positive mindset. I'm going to make some money today. I need this, you know? And I was the only one in the casino. And the dealer was kind of like, well, like, kind of like, what are you doing? Kind of thing. It's like half nine. Like this, no one's ever here at this time. And I was like, oh, I'm doing my Christmas shopping. Whether she believed me or not, I don't know. But I lost all my money, like, like really quick. I was playing blackjack. I lost all my money, like, boom. And I'm like, shit, I've come this, all this way and I have lost all my money already. And I got some more money out. I lost that straight away. And she said, do you think you should take a break? Don't you think you should go off and do your Christmas shopping? I think you should take a break. It's the first time anyone ever, ever intervened or said anything. And it was like the kind of the elephant was out, like, you know, the, the, the elephant was called out, if you like, in the room. It was like, shit, someone knows about this. So, yeah, I mean... That didn't deter me though. I chain smoked like mad outside the casino for, you know, like a whole deck of cigarettes. And then my feet literally uncontrollably just marched me to the next casino. 
I was like, right, I'm going to get my money back, chasing losses. I spent all day in London and, and spent like a month's wages. And that evening I came back, just like sat like a zombie on the train, like what the hell's going on? Just completely like zzz, numb and uh, yeah, self-excluded from casinos. So that was the first step, if you like, in a very long road of recovery, which is still ongoing, but that was the first major step for me. That's a very powerful one. So self-exclusion, Alex, like what a huge independent decision. And I say that because I didn't even know it existed until I went to one of my treatment centers. Like I didn't know you could really sign off or is it the same there in London where if you exclude and you go on, you can get arrested for trespassing. That's kind of how it works here in the States. Yeah. So I was led to believe that was the same here. But I then, <laughs> I then actually went back into a casino to try. I didn't get arrested. I thought I was going to, but I didn't get arrested. So no, I don't think, I think it's at, their, I think it's at the casino's discretion. I, I, so yeah, I, okay. So I don't know. I don't really know. But, but the concept's the yeah. same. It sounds like, yeah, I have friends here in the States too that like, this is how crazy the, the addiction is, right? One of the girls, she was in GA with me she relapsed, she goes back, she's playing. And as long as you don't like win a jackpot or stick your card in, they don't know you're there, right? Unless they see you visually. She lost all her money. She went to the window to get a cash advance, knowing that she could get arrested or in trouble. And they just escorted her out. I think they, I think on some level they know, I mean, they know who we are, the ones that shouldn't be there. They, they yeah. know, they're not, they see us in there every day. They see that glazed over look. We're not, yeah. no, we're not there recreationally. They know. So I think there's some kindness to that, that maybe like the first time they, they mm. escort us out and, and give us a, a kind reminder. That's my, yeah. my theory. So yeah. self-exclusion was the first step you took. It didn't work completely if you went back to test the theory. So what other steps do you have experience with 12 step? Did you go to get Gamblers Anonymous? So, so I've never done Gamblers Anonymous. It's something I've not done. I, I actually, I took private counseling. That was, that was kind of on the turn of that on like the beginning of 2018. I took a round of like private counseling. I'd give by this point, it was for a myriad of stuff. At this point, I didn't kind of tell them about the gambling per se, because it was about the sort of the drugs and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's not like a clean break of like, I then took up GA and then it was like, I went completely cold turkey kind of thing. It wasn't until really, I mean, my last bet was around, I don't, I don't know my last bet. Like, I, just, I don't know my last bet. It was about a year-ish ago, as it were. It was a kind of a gradual fade, but what's really helped is uh, release my, my podcast, if you like. That was kind of almost my, my recovery in a way. I was like, family, friends. God bless him, took his own life from gambling related suicide. It was horrific. It was really, really not, not nice at all. Just, yeah. So it had a massive impact and it was the beginning of lockdown. So yeah, almost a year ago now. And I just thought what better time to kind of, I don't know, raise awareness. I was just like, right. I started a vlog channel on YouTube just to kind of entertain myself during lockdown. And then I started a podcast that I wanted to kind of talk about kind of taboo stuff that's not really kind of spoken about much and it got to week three and I was like and then the whole thing with Lee kind of happened and I was just like well okay let's talk about the gambling let's do this let's just do this now and it's on YouTube and I, I mean I, I, I bore my eyes out like it's ridiculous probably 
people have since told me it's like sometimes listening to maybe a first share at GA, you know, where there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of stuff that people have never shared. And it's like the first time they're talking about it. So it's a bit like that. And then from there, my brother was like, I mean, it got a lot of support for me. It was like, it was amazing. Cause it was like, Oh, you know, everyone says it's like the weight off your shoulders, but it really was. And then all of a sudden friends were getting in touch. Old school friends were getting in touch and saying, thank you. Or, you know, here's my support or, you know, just some really nice messages. And for so long, I felt so alienated and so alone in this addiction to have that it was like people were just reaching out and putting, you know, just putting their arm on me and just going, it's okay, you know, come back. You've, you know, you can come back into, into life, as it were. And it was just amazing. So that, if you like, has been my recovery. And then I've, since I've joined recovery groups on Zoom. And yeah, so that's kind of been my recovery, if you like, or is my recovery. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry about, I'm sorry about your friend. How did you know... How did you know it was gambling with him? So it's quite a sort of sensitive t- uh, subject in a way. Cor- the, I think the coroner's report has come back, I think, now. But it was a kind of real t- sort of touchy subject because, as ever, there's a lot of stigma with the gambling side of things. And I think family and, and such like were not keen on that kind of maybe coming out and the shame and the stigma maybe they would feel. But it was around when the tax bill kind of was due and Lee had gambled heavily and then chased his losses. And then by the next day, you know, mm-hmm. took it yeah, past, past. So yeah, it, it was kind of related, I guess. Yeah. I, 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 I'm sorry. I shouldn't probably be prying. I guess the, the why of my question is I think that, some of the people that listen to the show aren't gamblers, but maybe they're like curious, maybe someone in their life, maybe they have a suspicion, maybe they don't know what they don't know. So what I was, I think that the stats are wrong and this is just my personal opinion, but I think that more people commit suicide due to gambling than we'll ever know about because no one knows. Like your show's called The Hidden Illness. It's called that for a reason because it is hidden. It's not something that people talk about. And to your point, the families after they're not going to advertise that they're not going to be like hey so i was curious if there was any warning signs or anything that we could share with the people out there that are listening that don't know what they don't know mm. the, the cues right like like i said to you you and i could walk in and we'd have our certain look and and just like the dealers would recognize we're compulsive gamblers what can normal people see to maybe dig deeper if they had suspicion that their family member was that that's yeah. kind of where i was going no no for sure it's the invisible addiction by the way the hidden illness it's called the invisible addiction just to let oh, you know i screwed that up i'm sorry hey no 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 it's fine uh, addiction the hidden illness uh well it's just the invisible addiction so. what did you just say the hit did i call it the hidden illness yeah oh my god sorry <laughs> it's fine it's fine. No, 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 no. I mean, it is the hidden illness, for goodness sake. It's the same same thing. So, yeah, so I guess the signs to look for, I guess, I suppose kind of, you know, secretiveness or like trying to hide things or not being very open about finances or being very quiet, kind of being very kind of isolated or like deliberately kind of, you know, not communicating that kind of thing, I guess would be some of the signs. Maybe mood swings as well. Maybe sudden burst of like anger 
that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. It was, it was, that's what led me there. You took advantage of COVID is what it sounds. And I love that, that you chose to go after the resources. I'm in the process. I still have two more months. I think I've been, when, when COVID hit, I started recording two shows a day Wow. as a way to let people know, like I was going through it too, right? Like, and, and to let them know they could feel what they needed to feel but in hindsight, and after last year, what I realized was it was a big part of my own recovery. And I, I feel like almost it was selfish, but I didn't know that at the time. But the revelations, like when, because I read out of a book, I do a daily reading and, and I share that way, but I'm having all these aha moments and all these emotions and I'm letting it out on the air. I didn't do it in one big burst. Like I can remember when you said that. It's like sharing in your first GA meeting. I remember that meeting. And I was. I was hysterical the whole time. So I could really relate to that too. But there is something healing about sharing our story and trying to help other people. Do you, do you find so yeah, do you find that as well then? I guess, yeah, from from you know, doing the podcasts and things like that. It's yeah, is that your experience as well? You just yeah. It yeah, it's it's very healing. Like I said, like mm. it, it just presented you know, I guess it's kind of like journaling, right? When you freestyle journal, you're downloading everything. That's what I was doing with the podcast. I was checking in in the morning and then at night, I was still working my day job at the time. That was my commitment. That was what I said. I'd do it twice a day as long as I was working my day job from home. I'm now down to once a day. I still do the reading, but I don't check in at night anymore. It's a lot to podcast twice a day. I can imagine. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I do like one every few weeks and that's hard enough. (laughs) yeah Yeah, it it was definitely a lot but yeah so I found for me and and I can tell like if I have to sneak off for a day or two like if I went to Connecticut or I went on this five-week trip not too long ago and I ported from the road into my phone and I had my team upload and everything for me but there was times I like might have recorded a couple days ahead or I was behind a couple days feel different on the days I don't record and talk Mm. You've experienced that too. Do, do you think that's because like you enjoy communicating? You, you know, well, obviously you enjoy communicating, but I feel, I feel kind of cleansed. But like you've just described when I'm doing a journey, if I'm just writing some, uh, like a diary entry, like I say, I'm just kind of, my friend calls it a brain dump. And I was like, I really like that expression. It's just a brain dump, and, but you feel kind of feel cleansed. So I guess, I guess I wonder if it's, yeah, because you're like, well, I haven't kind of reeled off, you know, my brain needs to kind of reel off all this sort of stuff. So I wonder if it's that. Yeah. The language I use around it for my audience is like, and the way I imagine it when I talk about it is like, I have this bucket here in my gut and the bucket was filled with negative shit when I was gambling. It was the shame, the lying, the sneaking, but also all the trauma and things that happened from early on that I believe now today why I gambled. So I believe all this is in the in this negative bucket. The trauma and the shit, we're all at the bottom. It's the bottom three inches is what I call it. So when you do the, the brain dump or the journaling or the podcast, you're emptying the negative out of the bucket. Now you still have to do the work on the other side. And the way I preach to my people is you got to have, you got to fill your bucket with the good stuff, which is journaling, meditating, you know, serving others, whatever that looks like, but that keeps your bucket full. But you have to do, I don't believe that anyone 
And again, I'm not a therapist. This is just my own philosophies. But I believe that you have to get through that bottom three inches before you'll ever be successful in never gambling again. Like in GA, they say it's not important to know why we gamble, which is fine. GA works for so many people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. This is just what my experience has been was once I broke through and understood, like I'm going to ask you another question because this was something that played a part in my gambling story, but, and I'm sorry, I'm, I don't mean to talk so much about me, but it, I'm trying to get to a point here, but can you share what your relationship with money looked like through your life? Maybe I'm curious because you talked about the savings account and having access to money young. Like, did you come from a family of money? Do you think your relationship with money had anything to do with your perspective and gambling? That's kind of where I'm going. Yeah, hundred percent. Do you know, it's something I've never really kind of thought about, right? The relationship with money. Cause I had a really, I had a very kind of middle-class upbringing, a very nice, comfortable upbringing. My dad's a dentist. So he always earned a really good salary, a six-figure salary. So even at this early age of like maybe 13, 14, I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, I've got to match this. I, I, how? But I kept thinking, how am I going to match? How am I going to get a six-figure salary? Like, I need to, to match it or, or go beyond that. So my relationship with money's early doors was like, I need a lot of it, right? That's it kind of thing. And that pressure, straight away, I was like, pressure. But when I, was at, when I was at school, I was always that kid that would buy a load of chocolate bars and try and sell them to you, you know, for sli- slightly a bit more profit. So I was kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Yeah, I was always, you know, always trying to, to, to kind of make a quick buck. But then I had part-time jobs. But my relationship with money, yeah. And then I took up football refereeing, soccer refereeing. So that was kind of cash. At an early age of, say, 17, 18, I was already earning all right money, you know, a couple of hundred quid, a couple of hundred pounds, as it were, like just cash. It wasn't in a bank account, it was cash. So the gambling became easy because I could just go, you know, bring the cash in, go to the, you know, go to the bookies and stuff. So the value of cash kind of wasn't really there. It was just this thing, this exchange. And then, as I say, when I went to university, I had a student loan. It was just like, I'm a student. I didn't have a job and it was kind of, yeah, it was just student. But then when I had the job at university, uh, after university, I had this like nice paying salary. I was like, oh, okay. Like, what do I do with it? Or like, how does this work? You know, am I supposed to put stuff in savings? Because up until this point, I was always kind of doing my own thing to get the money. And then later on, it became when I was really thick into the gambling and the addiction was like really there, money just completely lost its value, you know? completely lost its value. I remember sometimes I think I pulled out like a 50 pound note. Now in, in England, it's like this massive, big pink banknote that nobody ever carries around. Like they're really rare. But if you go to a casino and you win money, they'll give it to you in fifties. And so it's kind of like, it's got connotations of like for people that are maybe gangsters or like drug dealers or that kind of thing, the crime kind of thing. And I remember just pulling out like, a 50 pound note and my girlfriend thought oh my god that's a 50 pound note that's amazing that's so cool and i was just like yeah no worries and the value of money was just ridiculous as i say i had a couple of big wins and it was just paid in brand new 50 pound notes like a wad mm-hmm. and I, it just didn't didn't have that like that excitement it should have had that excitement like oh my god that's so much money but i just lost all sense of value of money i never had as i say had savings 
I was never, I feel like I'm blaming my parents, but I was never kind of taught like you've got to save, right? Maybe that's my individual responsibility, but when I had savings, I I had no plan at 22, 23. I was like, well, I don't know. I'll go to Thailand for a bit. I don't know. So yeah, it was, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's blaming your parents. I don't think, I think parents probably do the best they can and nobody thinks to teach this stuff. They don't teach it to us in school. I mean, at least not here. No, right? not here. Plus those no. life skills. I, I find it interesting. There's two stories that you've told yourself in, in, as you're sharing with me. I'm a failure if I'm not out of the house by 25 and I need to make this amount of money because my father did. I think that that's pretty interesting that there's this, somehow you're putting pressure on yourself in this crazy way. And I wonder, and, and you probably wouldn't know the answer to this, but like, where did those, those thoughts come from? Because they're probably not true, right? Like, you're not a loser if you're home at 25 and money doesn't define your worth. I mean, in the real world, my perception of it. So like, where did these limiting beliefs come from? I don't know. You, it's really interesting, like you say. I mean, I mean, even now, as I talk about it, I'm like, yeah, God, yeah. yeah. Where have they come from? Like, was it early doors, like when I was really young or... I don't know. I mean, I'm the eldest of six kids. So I always kind of felt a responsibility. I don't know if it's an elder child thing where you kind of feel like you kind of got to look after the, I don't know what it is or bridge that gap between parents and brothers and sisters, but I always felt kind of like compelled to be organized and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that kind of limiting belief came from. I, I didn't really expect you to have an answer, but it's just interesting listening to you and, and the value of money I didn't, we don't have pretty pink notes. My thing was, if I won a jackpot on the slots, that seemed to other people like a good win. Mm. I was numb to that. And I'm like, yeah, let me just keep putting in a different machine. So yeah, we do lose. We do lose. So true. Yeah. Or like $100 bills here are, I think of them as a trigger. That would be big payouts here and stuff. Still, most of the time I look at a $100 bill, I still think, all those times I just stuck it in. But but for me, I was so freaking whacked. I would put a $100 bill in many of them, right? I'm just feeding them and they're nothing to me. But if I go to the coffee shop and they raise coffee by 10 cents, I'm freaking out. And like 10 cents is, you know. So true. Yeah. yeah we're, just, we're just not logical. <laughs> but that's so true, isn't it? That, I, sorry, I'm just like, bang, that was me. I was like, wouldn't think twice about, yeah, spending money on gambling but oh yeah oh, not spending that three pounds for coffee oh, no, that's not no i'm not doing that oh, God, <laughs> that's so true yeah. <laughs> yeah so so tell us what life looks like for you now you're back with the girl which is great right oh i wanted to acknowledge too the candy bar thing that wasn't like hustler what i've heard because you talked about opening the music business and and the band and different things i just think you have a nice entrepreneurial spirit that's my perspective and when you said that like opening these businesses in your 20s, I felt a little bit jealous, like, damn, I'm behind 10 years or, you know, 15 years because I'm just starting now. So those are the voices in my head. Well, if he could do it in his 20s, you see how that works? It's crazy. So that's a compliment to you that you have that entrepreneurial spirit. I like that. But Thank what you. does life look like right now? Yeah, for sure. I mean, just just quickly on that, I think it was, it was a really good experience. I, I look back, it's funny how you kind of, everyone thinks differently because I think and I look back with regret and think why didn't I make more of it or like why didn't I expand you know with the football thing and all that kind of thing so I guess 
it's each to their own, isn't it? But how does life look right now? Life is, do you know what? Life is good. It's free from gambling. As I say, the the podcast that I do is amazing. You know, the, the recovery community online is, is incredible. There's loads of support. I mean, you know, meeting p- people like yourself, I mean, it's, it's, it's just mad. Yeah, it's it's good. I've started a new job. I've got a job in gambling support, which is part-time. So yeah, so going to sort of become a kind of counsellor or whatever, or someone to kind of listen out. And so that's good. And I'm teaching drum lessons still. And that's been my kind of, ongoing concern if you like i live with my beautiful girlfriend we're back together we've got two nice little cats we live on the south coast which is nice near the beach and it just feels good to be kind of taking care of my health my mental health i have a routine i probably now have become kind of a little bit of set obsessed with working like before i you know like i said when i was self-employed like i would just i would love to just sit around all day and just smoke <laughs> marijuana and just do nothing and but now it's like I've completely flipped the switch. So I understand what people now say about working hard. <laughs> so yeah, no, life is good. Thanks. Yeah, it's good. That is awesome. So for my listeners out there, this has turned around in less than a year. You started a podcast, got back with the girl, are going into work in the field. You address your mental health, your routine. Like that's fabulous. Congratulations, Alex. Like that's Thank just you. beautiful. I'm very proud of you. That's good stuff. Thanks, Bobby. Thank you. (laughs) We we will make sure that we have your link for your podcast in the show notes and we'll blow you up on social media a little if that's okay with you. Get the name out. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. I think one of my favorite parts about this chat is that your recovery journey wasn't traditional. Like I think... I think what it showed me is we do have a lot of commonalities when we're gambling, but I'm not committed to any one kind of recovery. And I tell my people that because different things connect to different people. So I love that yours is like this virtual recovery and your own independent journey. I mean, you still have to be connected and have community, but you found your own style and way of healing. So that's also pretty impressive. Oh, thanks. Yeah. No, thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. It's, yeah, it's very kind of you to say. I've really enjoyed this. So I'm going to say farewell. Unless, is there anything I forgot to ask you that, that you needed to put out there? No, no, not at all. Sorry, sorry for motoring on so much and, and talking at 100 miles an hour. Yeah. No, it was great. Thank you so much for being here.